Thanks for listening. Uh, this is the Philip K. Dick Book Club, and in this episode, we'll be looking at Philip K. Dick's short story, Tony and the Beatles. It was originally published in 1953 in Orbit Science Fiction. It's currently most easily available in the third volume of the collected stories of Philip K. Dick, uh, the one with second variety um, advertised on the cover. And if you want to, I have my episode on second variety a couple weeks back. So you can go back and listen to that if you're interested. Okay, so what happens in this story, Tony and the Beatles? Well, Tony Rosie wakes up in his compartment. Um, it's kind of going to be an ongoing thing in Philip K. Dick's fiction is the compartment uh, or the con apartment. Um, seems to be just a smaller style apartment, usually with a lot of automation inside. Um, and he goes, well, he wakes up and he goes to enjoy breakfast with his parents. So you kind of, even though he's in an apartment, you have this kind of suburban feel where the, the young man goes down, the, young, the boy goes down to have breakfast with his parents. They're actually living in Beetlejuice, which is a colony planet of Earth, but it's populated by natives that resemble beetles on Earth. And they're listening to news from the war front on Orion. Tony's father is Joseph, Joseph Rosie, and he's outraged at the news, which reports on the near defeat of the human forces on the front. Joseph blames Earth commanders for moving too far from the supply lines. He is disgusted that Earthmen are losing to beetles. Leia Rosie, Tony's mother, suggests that Earth underestimated the resistance that they would face as they expanded out into the galaxy. Tony questions his parents for using the term beetle to describe the people from Beetlejuice, reminding them that Orion is their system and that the humans have occupied it. Tony's father is disgusted at his son for being a quote-unquote beetle lover. Tony goes out for the day with his EEP, which is a sort of robotic pet, into the city of, of Karnet. So we have a lot of setting established in this opening, opening passage that they're on Beetlejuice, the Beatles seem to be also multiple planets, but in this case, on Beetlejuice, they're, they're occupying a population of Beatles. So not only are they fighting the external war, they're occupying some here, and they're Earth colonists in Beetlejuice that basically see the, the quote-unquote Beatles as an inferior species. Um, and we're to have generational conflict between the older generation who are back in the war and the younger generation who perhaps will grow up a little more open-minded or, or, you know, especially Tony who grows up around the, these creatures. So on the road, Tony is picked up by a passing um, Pasuti, which is the formal name for the people of the Beetlejuice system. Um, you know, I guess less formally Beatles. Um, but Pasuti is, is the, the formal name for them. And he has actually an internal combustion engine vehicle. And this is a really fun moment where you, you see there's kind of a technological difference there. And the, the internal combustion engine is evidence of them being sort of backward. So you kind of almost have this image of being picked up by, by kind of a redneck. So... Um, he, they, he asked the pedestrian Earthman if he needs a ride, and this is required by law. This is something that the Beatles are required to do, is to ask Earthmen who pass by if they need a ride. Tony is used to more friendly encounters with the, 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 these, with the PA, and the driver makes a joke about selling Tony's EEP, the robot for scrap. After a brief talk about changing fortunes on the front, the PA kicks Tony out of the car, and Tony is forced to take on a public bus. On the bus, he meets a female pa. 
Tony tells her that he was born on the colony and that his father was part of the settlement policy that brought these humans to, to Beeljuice. And she warns Tony about the coming about coming into the city because the people are all worked up over the news of the Earth defeat over uh, on the Orion front. She then suggests his family return to Earth. Tony explains that this is impossible due to the radiation on the Earth's surface. There's simply no room for humans. So we get a little bit more context in this part of the story of the kind of the, the realities. Earthlings are, are fleeing a kind of a devastated, blasted land back on Earth. It's overpopulated. There's not enough room. Therefore, you need, they need this land on the other planets to basically settle the population. Um, so I'm going to keep coming back to this as we go through these works, but Dick's view of the frontier is a really key element of his fiction. Frontiers could be places for wasted, discarded people. They are sometimes the solution to Malthusian crises where there's overpopulation. Sometimes they are the future of humanity and Earth becomes the abandoned, blasted land. Uh, that will be strongest in books like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And we see it here too that Earth is not the place people want to go. It, it's home perhaps, but it's, it's destroyed and, and useless and humans have to move on. But that means confronting these other species and displacing them. So Tony goes and finds his pa friends. So he's got friends that are these beetles, right? They are working on a model of a spaceport together, and they refuse to talk to him. Tony asks them why they're so mad at him, and he reminds them that he has nothing to do with the invasion of their home by Earth over a century ago. He's lived here his entire life. He's basically a Beetlejuicean um, in every way, but biologically. One of the children point out the news that shows the Pa are going to win the war, force Earth to pull back to its natural borders, and abandon Beetlejuice and the other occupied territories. One of them uses a Pa pejorative term for humans, which is white grub. So beetles and the white grub. Grub, of course, is the larvae stage of, of beetles. Beprith, one of Tony's more familiar playmates, tells Tony that he's not allowed to visit and play with him anymore. Uh, the, all of them start to throw rocks at Tony and begin to attack him. The EEP helps protect Tony long enough for a Terran scout ship to come by and pick him up and get him out of the city. Uh, that's another element of the geography of this story is that it seems that the cities are the where the occupied people live, the, the Pa, and the countryside, the suburbs are where the humans live. Back home, Joseph explains to Tony that the battle was truly lost. He promises revenge, both for the attack on Tony and the defeat on the front. Tony confesses that he now understands that he was born, he, that although he was born on Beetlejuice, this is not his home, and that he is essentially a colonizer. Joseph vows that humanity will fight for every inch, and that it will take centuries before they're finally pushed back to, to Sol Terra, and that he's going to fight for every inch. So not at all a happy ending uh, to this story. Uh, it's in many ways a story of, about growing up into racism, growing up into into understanding your place in a in apartheid system, if you will. Okay, what to make of this story? Um, now, th apparently this story was seen as pretty pedestrian by Dick's agent. And the story was sent to this newly started and low priority and, and uh, magazine. Um, so what was it again? Orbit Science Fiction. So this was not seen as a a big sale for him. Uh, unlike Imposter, which was published around the same time, sold to astou Astounding. 
I think that's the next episode. It was only anthologized once, and that was in 1958, and it was actually under a different name. It only found permanent publication in the collected short story books. There are some problems with the story. Its allegory is perhaps too obvious. The characterization of Tony's father is pretty black and white and not very um, appealing in any way. Um, but Dick was writing in a period where tensions were high about the ramifications of decolonization and the Cold War promoted this binary thinking. Um, and there's also something that feels real about Joseph Rossi's jingoistic exclamations. The story still has a lot going for it as commentary on decolonization. And that's, that's the angle I'm going to take on this mostly. I, I think we can also go at it from kind of a coming-of-age story about racism, but that's essentially tied to decolonization. Or if you want to say it's about civil rights back in America, you can do that too. Uh, you know, the loss of these colonies by the Terrans could be a metaphor for the abandonment, the loss of Jim Crow and the loss of segregation. And, you know, Tony and his family are, are kind of like the whites who feel displaced by, you know, the loss of and so they have to come to terms with the fact that they have to treat these people as, as equals. Um, now, all this predates, the story, I mean, predates Southern resistance to, like, the Brown versus Board of Education decision, things like that. But in many ways, Dick is pretty prophetic on some of these social issues. And people living at the time knew Jim Crow was under threat of, by activism. Um, it wasn't like it came out of the blue in 1955, 1954, with the Brown decision. Tony's situation is is really not all that common, uncommon in the 1940s and 1950s. After World War II, decolonization rapidly transformed the European colonies into independent nation states, uh, first in Asia um, and the Middle East, and then later on in Africa. And that, that goes on throughout pretty much all of Dick's life. I mean, there's still decolonization taking place in the 1980s. And I use that term decolonization uh, you know, with some hesitation, uh, decolonization is kind of a term historians give to this period. But in fact, these were a mix of of Europeans giving up colonies, but also colonized people fighting for their independence and, and winning it sometimes on the battlefield, certainly often in politics and, and in creating movements, political parties and all that. So it wasn't just the Europeans giving up their colonies like the term decolonization might imply. So like in the case of India, where the handover was peaceful, um, but the result of a long struggle um, that was often quite bloody, but the exact handover was, was done with the consent of the British state. But you had places like um, like Malaysia, where you had a lot more ethnic violence. In Kenya, you had the Mau Mau Revolt, which was much more um, violent. In Algeria, in Indonesia, and in, in South China, uh, or Indochina, not South China, Indochina, there you had, you know, decades, or years and years of war anyways in, in Indochina decades if you include the American intervention so essentially there's there's violence behind all this decolonization even if in an individual country there there seems to have been a peaceful handover the broader context of decolonization was one of war against imperial powers and in most of these places decolonization was followed by ethnic cleansing of a type People of European descent, including many who were born and raised in those colonies, were f forced to leave or left voluntarily as new former colonies created new identities based on nationalism uh, that often left little place for people of European descent. 
Um, in the case of places like the Indonesia, Dutch East Indies, you had people of Dutch descent who had lived there for you know, their whole life, or maybe their families had been there for generations. Now, this may have been necessary, but it was nonetheless traumatic for many who had to move, you know, move to places that weren't their home. Another possible parallel is the transition from plantation slavery to Jim Crow. Plantation slavery was a system of, of an oppressive system, but one that was in many ways racially integrated. You had white overseers, sometimes white working class people working alongside slaves uh, on the fields. Um, and then this slowly gets replaced with Jim Crow segregation where harder boundaries get put between um, the races. And I'm not sure that's what's going on here in the story. I think in many ways the story is really about growing up and realizing uh, one's privilege as a colonizer and realizing you can't be friends with the people that you're benefiting from, right? At some point, Tony's going to grow up and realize that his house, his property, his, his status is all the result of privilege coming through the political conquest of Beetlejuice by the Earthlings. So for me, I think that's really a big part of the story. But um, anyways, we see that Tony thinks he's liked and believes he has real friends among the, the Pa. Uh, he corrects his parents for using the pejorative term Beatles against the Pa, and he seems to be well-meaning. He wants to have friends with, be friends with the Pa. He still benefits, though, from all sorts of institutional privileges as a member of the colonizing race. He has to be picked up, right? They have to be polite to him. And it's only when there's a military victory abroad that the, the so-called friends, the classmates, the, the other young people in the colony can say, yeah, F off. We're not going to be nice to you anymore. We don't have to. We've earned our independence. That means we don't have to koto to colonizers anymore. He lives in a nicer apartment. There are Pa's passing by required to lend assistance to him. He gets the use of better technology. And you have this inequality of technology really represented by the Pa using internal combustion engines. And of course, he has a robot friend, which the Pa don't seem to have. Um, the, the Pa children play with, with, you know, with rocks and low-tech low play while he has the robot. He learns by the end of the story that all this was a false front. Um, all the friendship he had. The Paz were actually forced to be his friends, right? Because that's what the system required. And he learns that this was all false. Even his friendship with Bapreeth, who was supposed to be his good friend, was based on lies and propped up by the power uh, regimen. The rapid change in power relations brought an end to all of these lies. Um, so a military victory, millions of miles away, um, ends, ends the, the racial injustice system on Beetlejuice. Tony's father is a major figure in the story. Um, he's the more honest of the two. He seems to know that the Pa have no love for the Terrans. He is uncomfortable that his son has internalized some affection for them. Yet he, it seems that he wants Tony to learn the hard way that Bipreeth and others are not his friends. Joseph's jingoism is similar to the refusal of conservative whites in the post-Civil War South or in the former colonial powers to accept the end of white supremacy. He says, quote, but by God, we'll wipe them out, every last one of them. If it takes a thousand years, we'll follow every last ship down and we'll get them all. Beetles, goddamn insects. When I think of them, trying to hurt my kid with their filthy black claws. Um, well, there's not that much more to say about this story. I, I do think it 
it deserves a little bit more attention. I don't think it's a, a throwaway story necessarily. I, I like Dick's stories on uh, on race. They're not his best, but he does make a serious effort to deal with race in his in his career. And I, I think it's a part of his work that should be considered. Um, I like the stories of coming of age in, you know, in the context of racism, um, realizing one's privilege. Um, and maybe this that's a place in courses or in literary courses on the whole question of white privilege. Um, maybe there's been other people who've done it better. I, I don't know. But um, I, I think it's it's somewhat stands up. I also think it's it's really shocking how much our characters here, especially Tony's father, are invested in this system. They, they, they envision centuries long, centuries of war against these people before they finally be driven out. Rather than coming to terms with their privilege, learning to live with these people, accepting a reduction in their status, they'd rather fight to the last man. And I, I think that's a really horrific conclusion that he's made here. So anyways, that does it for this story. If you have any comments on the story, please leave them or you can email me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. Um, I'll see you next time. Um, pretty shortly, I'm going to be beginning to look at Solar Lottery. Solar Lottery wasn't published until 1955, but I, I just feel the need to you know, get a novel in early. Um, I, I will. My goal is to be roughly chronological, but I, I do think there's space to maybe jump it a little bit just so I can get a novel in. Um, uh, it'll be Solar Lottery. So I'm not sure when I'll do that. Probably um, in a couple weeks. But anyways, thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you next time with another story by Philip Dick. Bye-bye!